Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida. It's difficult to walk in their footsteps. It's, I mean, I mean, we live in an electronic age. We have lots of access uh, to huge digital projects, but you know, it's amazing what was accomplished in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s. We'll talk with a Florida lawmaker who was part of the pork chop gang in the mid-20th century. You received $100 a month, except when the legislature was in session, at which time I think we got an additional $20 a day. A discussion about pre-Columbian Florida, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. If you've been searching for answers to questions about Florida history, one of the best research facilities in the state is the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Established in 1945, the library was named in honor of the prominent Floridian Philip Keyes Young, who lived from 1850 to 1934. In the last year of his life, P.K. Young was president of the Florida Historical Society. Author and historian James G. Cusick is currently president of the Florida Historical Society and is curator of special collections at the P.K. Young Library of Florida History. The Young family has a long history going back in, uh, in Florida and Georgia. Uh, at least one of their early ancestors was the surveyor general, the royal surveyor for Georgia. Uh, and other ancestors were in uh, the lumber trade in Fernandina, uh, also probably at that point in the African slave trade. Um, but uh, Young uh, was in the branch of the family that lived in Pensacola. Uh, he made his money primarily in uh, lumber and timber. Uh, but he was, uh, uh, like other uh, residents of that area at the time, he was very involved in the local community and the state community, uh, he sat on the board that uh, oversaw the foundation and creation of the universities. Uh, he was involved, uh, he had strong interest in Florida history and was involved with the society. And he had a number of sons. I think he had five sons altogether. Um, and uh, his son Julian, who is the actual uh, founder of the P.K. Young Library here at the University of Florida, uh, was, like his brothers, uh, very uh, uh, active and athletic uh, as a young man. Uh, we have pictures of them all in, uh, in their tennis outfits. Um, and uh, I guess uh, growing up in Pensacola with a view of the bay um, at a time when there was still a lot of sailing ships 
going in and out of Pensacola. He had, you know, he had an, a, a great interest in the early history of Florida and the exploration of Florida. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, uh, letters from him at uh, age 13 in which he's away at boarding school but is writing to his father wanting to know if he can have uh, money to buy a, a, a recently published uh, history of Florida that had just come out at that point. Like his father, Julian Young was very active in the Florida Historical Society, most notably as the longtime editor of the journal The Florida Historical Quarterly. Julian Young helped build the collection of the Florida Historical Society, now housed at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. As Jim Cusick explains, Julian Young also helped to create the University of Florida collection named after his father. Both father and son uh, were active in collecting on uh, Floridiana material. But sometime in his teenage years, Julian uh, uh, caught some sort of illness uh, which hurt his health and also harmed his hearing. Uh, and it apparently radically changed his plans for what he was going to do with his life. Uh, I, think he had been, I think he was interested in outdoor activity and engineering and surveying, and he, uh, his health wasn't really um, uh, kind of suitable for that kind of life. Um, and he turned more and more towards his interest in collecting Florida history. Uh, so, uh, so his father, the, the, you know, the libraries that exist today is partially is the collection that his father started, partially the collection that Julian then built on. Uh, and it became an enormous uh, private collection at their home uh, in Pensacola and was attracting all sorts of researchers and teachers from around the state who were just basically going to, to visit uh, the Youngs and then, and then work in the collections. Um, and in the 1940s, uh, Julian made the decision, this was after the death of his father, uh, made the decision to move the collection to the University of Florida. Uh, the School of Education uh, here at the university had already been named after his father at that point because of his prominent role in, uh, uh, particularly in, in sort of uh, uh, post-high school or secondary education in Florida. Um, and so Young, Julian Young himself actually came in uh, 1944, 1945, uh, and the collection was moved from the house over here, and Julian became the first curator. The P.K. Young Library of Florida History is part of the George A. Smathers Library System at the University of Florida. Smathers served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1947 to 1951 and represented Florida as a U.S. Senator for 18 years from 1951 to 1969. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole library system is named after Smathers, but this building uh, in particular is, is now known as the George A. Smathers Library. It's specifically uh, dedicated to him. And the dedication... The official dedication occurred just a couple years ago, I think, um, although it had been informally known by that name uh, before that. Um, and uh, uh, Smathers, again, very prominent uh, alumni from the University of Florida. His papers are here, uh, frequent uh, topic of research because of his interests and his connections in Latin America, had lots of interest in U.S. relations with Cuba, was, in a, was in a, an associate, a close friend of, uh, of President Kennedy's. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, the, uh, the, the, the building is named in his honor. The library system uh, as a whole is uh, also named after him. 
James G. Cusick is curator of special collections at the George A. Smathers Libraries. Those special collections include the Baldwin Library of Historical Children's Literature, the Harold and Mary Jean Hansen Rare Book Collection, and the Belknap Collection for the Performing Arts, as well as the P.K. Young Library of Florida History. The P.K. Young Collection and UF's other special collections are obviously valuable resources for students, but Cusick points out that they are also open to the public. I'm amazed at how many people call the reading room and say, am I allowed to use to come into special collections? Um, we obviously operate under some restrictions. People can't check the books out or take them with them. They have to work in our reading room, and they have to come when we're open. And, and for a variety of reasons, we tend to have weekday hours and very rarely are open on weekends. Um, but in other respects, we're like the public library. Um, you don't have to be a student or a faculty member or an affiliate of University of Florida um, to come use special collections. It's open. You don't have to be a resident of Florida. It's open to everybody. Um, and uh, the only thing that uh, we usually ask is that when people come in, they report first to the desk in the grand reading room and register and uh, let, let uh, a curator or the person at the desk know uh, what they're interested in, why they're there. Some people really are just coming just to see the room um, or to look at the exhibits. Um, other pe but but in a, a lot of people are coming to work on documentary films or on books that they're writing or we have graduate students coming from other universities to work on their dissertations or their theses. Um, and we have people from town, too, that are coming uh, in to do uh, local history. We have genealogists coming in a lot. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's no special, you don't need any special permission to come to the room. It's open to the public. Jim Cusick takes us on a tour of the P.K. Young Library, beginning with a map case located in the back of the main floor. Well, Ben, I thought this would be of interest to you today because... Uh, these maps that I'm about to show you have such a great story behind them that involves the historical society. Um, but right here, let me make sure we're pulling open the right case here. Okay. I don't think that you've seen these before, although I've talked to you about them. But these are the prints, um, the large prints of St. Augustine and Pensacola that were made off of original 18th century copper plates. Uh, and you can see uh, in this one, it's actually not showing St. Augustine, it's showing the area to the north of St. Augustine where Fort Mose is. And in this one, uh, we're seeing the whole harbor of Pensacola and the town. Uh, these um, prints that we're looking at, I think were made sometime in the 1980s. Um, from original copper plates that date from the 1780s. Um, they're remarkably detailed. They're incredibly detailed, uh, which tells you how you know, the plates are still in really good shape. Um, but the plates and these prints um, were all part of a work called the Atlantic Neptune uh, that came out in the 1770s, I believe, in a series of volumes. And... Uh, it was a, an atlas of the British possessions in North America prior to the American Revolution. So it included all the original colonies in Canada. Um, and it was, work, it was uh, based on the survey work of uh, this gentleman, J.F.W. Debar. Um, and I think the original volumes had a couple of hundred maps in them, which meant a couple of hundred plates to make the maps. Uh, 
But during World War II, uh, an archivist in London who was working with materials from the British Admiralty uh, discovered that 60 of the plates, around 60 of the plates from the work, still existed. Uh, the others had either been reused over time, they may have, uh, they may have even been used as uh, scrap metal in, in, in the ensuing 200 years. But he went to the Admiralty and he pointed out that they were of great historical value. And he made the suggestion, this was in, in probably 1943 or 44, that, uh, that they might make very nice gifts to Canada and the United States, both of whom were allies uh, with Britain uh, during World War II. Well, they couldn't do anything about it uh, during the war. Uh, but when the war ended, uh, the uh, British government first made a gift of 30 of the plates dealing with uh, Canada to the Canadian government, and they were shipped uh, to Canada and uh, put in the National Archives there. And then with the remaining 30 or so plates, they identified the modern states that they were associated with. and. Uh, and shipped them to the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., and then made formal presentations through the consulate uh, to uh, archives and libraries in the representative states. And five of those plates, which we're going to go downstairs and see in a minute, um, are of Florida. And they were presented to the Florida Historical Society, formally presented in St. Augustine when the society was there, I believe, in 1948. From the main floor, we go downstairs to a section of the library not open to the public to see the 18th century copper plates that the prints we were just looking at came from. So we're going into the first floor, closed stacks for special collections. Uh, this is a secure, fireproof, and temperature-controlled area. You can see we have lots of compact shelving in here, uh, and that's basically to make the maximum use of space that we can. And uh, the f oversize and folio materials for rare books are down here, but then as you can see, the shelves were up to what, shelf 25 now, is, are just stacked with archival sure. boxes, which are all the records and manuscripts that uh, uh, we maintain here. And we're going to go, uh, and little bits and pieces of all the collections are down here. We have, we have uh, the paperback sections of the children's book collection. We have the manuscript collection. Uh, we've already passed performing arts. Um, okay, and here we are down at the end. I'm just going to move this one unit here. So we'll let that move over. And uh, Very high tech here. You've just pushed a few buttons to move a large stack of materials over. Uh, yeah, the, the idea is that uh, we only open an aisle when we need to get into a space, and that means we don't have to have a lot of aisle space. Now, the question is, did I pick the right... Oh, I think we did. Wanna, if we move down a little bit, and we'll go, go all the way down to the floor here. You'll see we have a, an open file box here, and you will hear me grunt now as I try and pull this partially out. Uh, one thing about these copper plates is when you got five of them together, they weigh a lot. Um, I have no idea, I would say maybe 25 pounds a piece. I'm sure this is this box is probably 125 pounds. Um, all right, so I'm going to just pull off some of the identifying material here and we keep them. We have dust covers on them. Yeah, there we go. Pull that out. So, okay, and this top one, this is, th we try and keep this one on top because this is the one of Pensacola, which is by far the most elaborate and uh, 
you get an idea when you see the the print, you know, how fine the engraving is and how much, in, you know, incredible texture there is in it. Um, let me pull this piece of plastic off so we don't have the shine on it. Now, to make these prints, obviously, the, the copper plates are all uh, done in reverse, which makes it even more amazing. They're mirror images, exactly. The, so um, the, the writing has to be in reverse. The topography has to be in reverse. And you can see, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a heavy plate. And uh, what is that, about two and a half feet by... Oh, 18 inches. I mean, it's it's substantial. James G. Cusick is a noted author and historian. He wrote the book The Other War of 1812, The Patriot War and the American Invasion of Spanish East Florida, and co-edited the book The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives. He serves as president of the Florida Historical Society, just as P.K. Young did in the 1930s. Cusick is very aware of the young legacy. It's difficult to walk in their footsteps. It's, I mean, I mean, we live in an electronic age. We have lots of access uh, to and huge digital projects. But, you know, it's amazing what was accomplished in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s um, without all this technology. Uh, and 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 much of the uh, much of the use of, for instance, the Florida History Collection, the Young Collection, is is based on things that predate me by decades. Uh, you know, the collection of uh, Spanish colonial documents on microfilm was all a project that was done in the 1970s, and the indexing of all of that material was also all done in the 1970s. And that's still one of the primary reasons that people come here is interest in colonial history. Um, the uh, materials we have both in books and in manuscripts from the 19th century, a lot of that was collected by um, Julian Young and by Elizabeth Alexander, my immediate predecessor. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do my best to try and maintain the collections, expand the collections, uh, but I'm very well aware of the fact that, uh, that my task is a lot easier than the task of the people who had to build this library from scratch. James G. Cusick is curator of special collections at the George A. Smathers Library at the University of Florida, which includes the P.K. Young Library of Florida History. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. In the 1950s and 60s, rural legislators, mostly from North Florida, dominated state politics until reapportionment ended their reign in 1968, bringing more progressive thinkers to Tallahassee. Janie Gould talks with former legislator Bill Scott, a self-proclaimed member of Florida's Pork Chop Gang. Bill Scott was a legislator from Martin County in the late 50s and early 60s. In those days, the legislature met every other year, and virtually everyone in the House and Senate was white, male, and a Democrat. It was a heady time for small counties such as Martin, St. Lucie, and Indian River because each of Florida's 67 counties had at least one state representative. It was also the height of the baby boom. Bill Scott and his wife Catherine had a growing family when he was elected to his first term. Did you move your family up to Tallahassee each year for the, the session? first term, I had four children, and they all had measles, or chicken pox, one of the two, just before it was 
session open, I did not take them with me the first term. Now, the second term I did, we had uh, five children by then. We had a prayer breakfast. One of the, the guys said that they used to say that the legislature was inactive between turns, but the number of new babies that have arrived has shown that we're not as inactive as people thought we were. The pay for legislators was nothing to write home about. You received $100 a month, except when the legislature was in session, at which time I think we got an additional $20 a day. We might have been able to get some postage during the session, and during the session they would print our letterheads for us. Legislators had an office in an annex behind the Capitol. The office consisted of three or four desks located in a rather large-sized room and maybe a chair or two to sit in, but that was it. We drew our own bills, although we had a bill drafting system. We would get the outline of it and take it down to the bill drafting department. After the first session, Scott came home from Tallahassee on the train. When I got to Stewart, they had a welcoming committee for me. There at the railroad station was a cheering crowd consisting of Catherine Scott and the couple's children. They had a banner saying, Welcome home, Daddy. The rest of the people couldn't have cared less. Was there any business to take care of it when the legislature wasn't in session? You didn't have a local office, legislative no, office, did you? No. They wanted me, they called me up or came over to see me or got me at lunchtime or something. At that time, in the legislature, we had 120 representatives, of which three, count them, one, two, three, all from Pinellas County. But in those days, the old folks from up north, who were Republicans up north, came down and just could not do anything but register Republican. So they got three representatives, and I believe they had one senator. Everybody else was a Democrat. Let me ask you this. Were you a pork chopper? I sure was. And proud of it? And proud of it. Even though you were really South Florida, but you were from a rural county. Rural county in South Florida. That's right. There might be some people out there who don't know what the pork chop gang was. <laughs> <laughs> they probably would call that a caucus. Because of our numbers, we could pretty well run the legislature. There was no national thing that came down to us from a bunch of, excuse the term, Yankees. Do you know where the term came from? Pork chop gang? Pork choppers came from where they eat pork. Pork is a so-called a, a he-man dish. Lamb is something that poor little lamb wagged their tails, little lambs who lost their way. In other words, the South Florida urban people weren't known as the lamb chop. Well, not only South Florida, because you had Tampa and you had Jacksonville, and you had some leanings toward it out in Pensacola. So you were a pork chopper from Martin County. Yes, ma'am. My people, except for the Jupiter Island area, were farming folks, really. Bill and Catherine Scott live in Stewart. Janie Gould prepared that report. That's all, folks. This is Florida Frontiers. Ponce de Leon joined Christopher Columbus on his second voyage to the New World in 1493, and in 1513, Ponce claimed Florida for Spain. Bill Dudley has this look at pre-Columbian Florida. There's a big change in perspective that, that's really solidified here, and one that the public is really pretty unaware of. Journalist and author Charles Mann. His book, 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, draws on the research of archaeologists and anthropologists, geographers, ecologists, and demographers to refute ideas many of us have taken for granted. In the late 60s, early 70s, we were taught three basic things about Native Americans. 
They walked across the Bering Straits 12,000 years ago. They lived for the most part in small, scattered bands. And Indians had so little impact on the environment that when Columbus landed, the Americas were, for all intents and purposes, a wilderness. But in the 1970s, a new generation of scholars and scientists began shaking up established ideas about pre-contact America. Experts now believe our hemisphere has been inhabited not for 12,000, but for over 30,000 years. And not by primitive hunter-gatherers, but people who built great earthworks and canals, reshaping nature for their own purposes, often years before their eastern counterparts. Modern estimates of pre-Columbian population have exceeded 100 million. Most of the people who lived in the Americas lived either in cities or towns or were connected to them because they were farmers who produced for these towns. They were part of the infrastructure of these towns. There were nomadic peoples, but they were you know, the, the great minority. They were vital, sophisticated cultures and civilizations. Their largest urban settlements were larger than anything in Europe, anything in the world. University of South Florida historian Ray Arsenault. Like there's some debate about whether the largest Chinese cities at the time were as large as Tenochtitlan, which is, of course, near present-day Mexico City. Accounts of early Spanish and English explorers describing these metropolitan areas were often dismissed as exaggerations. Then, suddenly, European diseases began to rapidly decimate the indigenous population. You know, if you're orbiting the Earth, say, looking down at this while this was all happening, you would have seen Columbus and a few Europeans coming to the Americas. And then you would have seen this terrible, terrible wave of death with three-quarters to 90% of the native population dying between 1500 and 1650. In approximately a century and a half, you have perhaps the greatest demographic disaster in human history in the hemisphere, the population falling from maybe 120 million down to 13 million. The Spanish did write about the extraordinary death rate, but even they had, I think, little comprehension of how extensive it was. They saw the periphery of it. They knew that Native Americans were dying in large numbers. Many of them died before the Spanish and other explorers could even penetrate the interior. So, so even before the, there was a, a serious attempt to colonize, uh, the microbes, the pathogens, had already done much of their work. An important borderland between the Caribbean Basin and mainland North America, Florida at one time might have been home to nearly a million people. Hardly a sparsely populated wilderness, the author describes a settled landscape managed by its inhabitants to encourage the growth of plants and wild animals for food. The environment was dominated by what they call anthropogenic fire, human-generated fire. This is a, a fire ecosystem that's totally dependent on people burning regularly large areas of land. And some of the first Spanish accounts you know, are, are of Indians burning and burning. The, the result is that the Florida Peninsula, it isn't this trackless wilderness at all. But as one of the first points of contact, Florida was one of the hardest hit. And because it was you know, relatively urbanized and relatively developed, the depopulation here in colonial years was relatively quick and pretty thorough. You lost a lot of people. And so this kind of luxuriant, quote, jungle vegetation that you kind of associate with Florida and that people write romantic novels about how terrible it is that it's all being despoiled is actually quite a modern phenomenon. Meanwhile, early European settlers were apt to look on these events as a form of destiny. The conception that this was a kind of empty land ripe for the taking, that either natural forces or God or whatever had cleared it away for the Europeans who, who needed it because they had been suffering from overpopulation and conflicts that had beleaguered Europe for centuries. And somehow now they get this new land where they can begin again and be fruitful and multiply. 
that's the way many of them saw it at the time. They thought this was divine providence. Published in fall 2005, Charles Mann's book 1491 is a way for the rest of us to catch up with current scientific thinking about the number and importance of these original Americans, their cities, their societies, and their rapid demise. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.